Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Byrne. How you doing? I'm doing fine. Got another good show today. We do. We are talking to Didier Pietri, who is president and CEO of Strotman and Lukey Lab. And many of our listeners know Lukey Lab. They've created some amazing toys, including things like House Monsters, which I love. Uh, but they may not know Strotman. And Didier, you're the CEO. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, guys. It's fun to be here. It is. It's fun to have you here. This is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. And we are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, The Toy Guy, and Beacon Media Group. And Didier, why don't you just start out by telling us a little bit about you and your career, and uh, then we'll get into why did you start a toy company? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, please remind me. Um, uh, You know, my my career has been... uh, Interesting because I've been mainly in the creative industry, uh, even though I have a background as a uh, an MBA, but I've worked mainly in the creative industry at the Disney company, at the studio, at the TV studio, at the ABC television network, and now for the last over a decade in the toy industry. And what is interesting is always to look at the similarities between all those creative businesses, which have a lot of things in common the fact that they rely on they are head-driven business that don't always rely on rationality, that you can always predict what's going to work, that there's a number of like random things happening that you can always control. And so that's uh, that's a little bit my, my career in a way, which is trying to uh, herd cats. <laughs> and people may not know Strotman, and you guys are, are basically a, have been a development company who have developed toys for a lot of people and toys people might know. Basically, Strotman and Lucky Lab right now, we, are, we can think of us as a three-brand company. We have the Strotman brand, which has been around for a long time, which is basically a toy manufacturer business to business. And we make a lot of toys and a lot of books. We make tens of millions of books a year or two besides toys. Uh, and we make a lot of toys for some of the base, biggest brand name, you know. We make all the kids' toys for Wendy's, for example. We do um, all the wood kits for our Lowe's. We do all the Chevron cars. So we have a lot of uh, big client, Kroger, others, um, where we do a lot of product for them on a business-to-business. So that's the first part of our uh, business. The second part is... We have Lucky Lab, which we started uh, about four years ago. And the idea behind Lucky Lab was that I realized that I had three quarter of a toy company. And the quarter missing was basically the creative and marketing, which I was very familiar with. But with Strutman, I already had the presence in Asia, in Hong Kong, in Shenzhen. I already had, you know, like uh, HR, I had finance, I had operations, I had safety. And so I thought, you know, in a way, I always describe it as saying that we had a beautiful house and we had a second story when it was halfway done. And if I could finish the sto- second story, in addition to it, I could actually have a view of the ocean. So it's going to make my house a lot more valuable right away. Right. So that's why we decided to start uh, Lucky Lab, because we wanted to bring creative and marketing, which was the part missing and then leverage the rest of the company to start a toy company, but not from scratch. So we are a startup within a very well-funded, very well-established company. But 
to continue your metaphor, you built the second story, but my goodness, a consumer facing toy company is pretty risky. You know, that second story might be a little bit shaky. <laughs> yeah, but that's, that's the important thing of having a good foundation before you put a second story up, right? I mean, that's the key thing. We have a very, very solid foundation. And if you look at the economics compared to a even a smaller toy company or a startup toy company, we are able to stay at the table for a long time. And as you know perfectly well, you never know what's going to hit and when. And what is critical is being able to stay at the table long enough and gamble every year and play the game until you have the perfect hand and then being able to exploit that hand. So in our situation, you know, a lot of like small toy company, and by the way, big toy companies too sometimes, they're only two, three years and one hit away from bankruptcy. Sure, sure. Happens a lot. Yeah. And in our case, we have a very, very solid core business. And so we are able to, you know, even if we don't have a hit for the next one year, two years, three years, it doesn't affect anything in terms of the viability of the company. And that's very important from a modeling standpoint. Let's talk uh, fundamentals for one minute. Where is your company headquartered? What are the major countries your products are sold in? Can you give us some of that detail? We are headquartered in uh, Southern California. We're in Irvine, right by Newport Beach. So it's a very nice, very uh, uh, charming environment. We have an office in Atlanta, Georgia, and we have an office, a big office in Hong Kong and a big office in Shenzhen. Basically, all our business is domestic. We have international distributors that are just starting to uh, distribute our product. But right now, we are essentially a domestic player. And as I said, we have very big economies of scale on paper and plastic because of the volumes we do. And so we are able to take advantage of that in our direct-to-consumer toy business. And you've introduced a couple of lines. I mentioned House Monsters earlier, which I just think is one of the most creative plush lines I've seen in a long time. And it, it's super high quality, just really fun. And it plays with the idea of the monsters that live in the house. And, and it, it's really great for kids. You also have a line called Pinksies, which is great. which is very STEM-based. You don't do a lot with chips or electronics. How do you choose the, the toys that you want to develop for your own brands? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, you know, it's interesting. We have introduced five brands in the last three years, and four of the five brands are STEM authenticated. And one of the reasons we looked at that is STEM is obviously very important for the development of kids. But if you look at the STEM shelves at most retailers, STEM is a little bit where fun goes to die. Okay. <laughs> And uh, so, so true, so true. <laughs> and so it's basically the kind of product that grandparents would buy or parents saying, okay, at least I'm going to feel like I contribute to their education. And then the kids open the box and says, I've been ripped off. This is not a toy. Okay. So we're, we wanted to bring something fun to, uh, to STEM. And so Pink Seas is one of the most innovative and well-designed uh, STEM assembly set for girls. It has very successful uh, skews like the mermaid ship, which is the best-selling one. Uh, and we're coming with more this year. We're going to have a total of 10 skews by the end of this season. And so that's an example of a line where people can comfortably buy a STEM product and also make sure that the kid's going to enjoy and play it. Um, same thing, you know, we brought back the old sea diver, which you guys might 
remember from the 1970s. I'm going to date myself, but who cares at this point? I was given the Sea Diver way early in the 70s, and I always loved that product and never found it again. Then found out that we could redo it. So we redo it. We did it under the, uh, the brand name Clossum. And actually, it's the same thing here. It's basically there is no power, no Wi-Fi, no screen, no problem. It's one of those retro cool toys, which is also STEM authenticated. So what we've decided to do is try to find first some good product that we could make that we're fitting STEM. But we don't want to be only in the STEM business. So we had an idea of House Monsters that you mentioned. We have a lot of experience making plush. We make millions of plush a year. And so we're able to take advantage of these skills and develop house monsters and make them high quality, affordable, the way they have been uh, well received in the marketplace. Now, you made a very, uh, I think, a cogent comment when you said uh, it was a bit like herding cats. The last two years has been thousands and thousands of cats. <laughs> but yet, you have managed your way through all that. And my thought always has been there's not much I can control in life, but I can manage a hell of a lot. Is that how you do it, or do you have a different method? No, Richard, you're absolutely right. Uh, I always tell my team, I don't spend a second worrying about things I cannot control. And the second rule I have is whatever can go wrong will go wrong. <laughs> So like this, we are prepared if you want. But honestly, if you had told me when we started that division that we would face a global pandemic, a supply chain, uh, you know, like issue and all the things we've experienced in the last three years, I would have told you maybe I shouldn't do that now. But at the same time, it was a good time for toys. And a lot of our product like the Gujo Rocket and Robomax were perfect toys for these times where people were stuck at home. So you know what? We take the good with the bad. It's been challenging. But again, the fact that we have a very solid structure around us has been very helpful. You know, like logistics has been an issue, but we ship tens and tens of containers every month. So we have been able to absorb some things better than other companies. But you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, there's been a lot of cats and I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a dog guy. You know, I have five dogs at home. <laughs> So I, I'm doing really good with dogs. I'm not as good with cats. There's cat fur all over the toy industry. <laughs> there, there exactly. Is. And if I could just follow up, you made a another statement that interested me, and that is you said you've been doing kids' meals for Wendy's. And I have some familiarity with that business. I work tangentially with McDonald's. And I know how demanding that from a logistics standpoint to get everything where it needs to be. And those fast food people are unforgiving. To me, that says a lot about your organization that you can handle that. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing for Wendy's? Sure. We have been in business with Wendy's for over 12 years now. But we've been doing uh, all their kids' meal, and so we have a long, very, very uh, good relationship with them. But you're absolutely right. 
in a way, it's a great way to get prepared for the tour industry because it's very strict rules. You know, we have everything has to be zero age grade. Everything has to be very, very buttoned up on every level. The logistics has to be exactly perfect. It has to be delivered the exact day. And so we've been doing this for a long time. And it has helped us a lot in, uh, in our um, retail and our DTC business because we have a very disciplined organization. I have a person that works in, uh, that does all the scheduling who is absolutely amazing. And she has never been doing retail toys before. When we said, you know what, you should also do the retail toys. She brought immediately great discipline to it. And so we had that part of the organization very, very strong and as you know, we have a 36-year history. We had zero recall, zero safety issue in all those years. We have our own people on the factory floor in China monitoring production. We don't subcontract that. These are our employees, okay? Yeah. So we have very, very uh, strong discipline we learn from working in this industry. And we're applying this very strict discipline to our direct-to-consumer and our retail product, we mix, which makes us right away serious competitors because we know what we're doing. I want to follow up on the QSR toys as well because I know from my work with, with uh, QSR restaurants, you have to deliver a lot of play for a price. And that price is, <laughs> is pretty low uh, comparatively. How has the need to create play at a low price point informed what you're doing in terms of design in your direct-to-consumer business? One of the things that I was very uh, surprised about when I first came in was that when we look at our costs, we don't do like, okay, it's $2.34. It's $2.3416. So we go fourth decimal wow. in the cent category. That gives you an idea of like the level of sophistication and the level of detail that the organization is used to, okay? And the reason is because, you know, when you go into one hundredth of a penny, it's not a big deal. But when you make, you know, 100 million toys, yeah. it starts to add up pretty quickly, yeah. right? Yeah. So I'm not going to bore you or a listener by making the calculation, but you can do the calculation in your head sure. and you see that uh, really quickly it adds up. So we have a very, very... Uh, a great experience in controlling costs, in knowing what things cost, what they should be costing, where the economies of scale can be applied. And that's one of the reasons, if you look at our product, we've been able to come up with great value at really good price for our product. The market's changed a lot and marketing has changed a lot in recent years. You've started an animation studio and you're creating your own content, which is really something that a lot of toy companies are doing what prompted you to do that and what kind of stuff are you producing? Yeah, so, you know, again, my background being in the content business, it was always a natural opportunity to do that. But if you look at it, uh, you know, and, and Hasbro has been very successful at that. I had a discussion with Brian Goldner a long time ago about that. And uh, they have been really good at matching content with product. And in our case, we basically wanted to have a studio to do two things. First of all, to provide content for our brands. So if you look at Pink Seas, for example, we have 12 animation episodes. Some of them have like a million views on it. Uh -huh. And that's how we're getting also the, the, the marketing of the brand. But also we are we're also developing some original content, which 
might be reversed. Maybe Lucky Lab will license the animation from Lucky Lab Animation Studio to develop toys from it. So we're going to have this double synergy, if you want, between the two divisions. And for us, the marketing has changed a lot. I mean, I, I remember when I was at ABC, you know, you had Saturday morning cartoons and you put shows on it and you put the uh, Cowboys of Mumesa and you're going to have like gigantic ratings and you're going to have, it doesn't work like that anymore. Right. It's much harder to reach kids and we're adapting to the environment. And for us being, and for my background, being a content guy, I work with a lot of animation company and it was very important for us to have this duality of the physical product as well as the content linked to it. And are you mostly distributing this via YouTube or how are you distributing the content you're creating? Everything is via YouTube. We have discussion with other platform, uh, OTT platform, but are interested in our content. We have to see whether it makes sense for us. Right now it's all YouTube and it's all served basically in our Lucky Lab channel and the channels for each brands. Talking about the content that's on YouTube, one of the challenges is getting eyeballs, get it driving people to that. How have you been managing your online presence and attracting kids to watch the content? It's funny because in a way I use a lot of my experience at ABC where I had to attract adult eyeballs to the show. Way back then when we put NYPD Blue on the air, you don't know if it's going to be a bust or if it's going to be nine episodes or out, or if it's going to be a, a, a great series that's going to be seven season. It's no different here. It's really a matter of like delivering the promotion to the right eyeballs, advertising in the right area. And we work very diligently in trying to make sure that we get as many kids as possible exposed to our content. I can tell from your accent, you sound Parisian. Actually, I'm not that sharp. You told me. <laughs> and Yet you live and successfully operate out of Southern California, which is a subculture of a subculture of a culture. And I'm just very interested in how you were able not only to navigate your way into and through the culture, but to really be able to operate it at the very highest level. Well, actually, Richard, I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> the French part of Brooklyn. <laughs> <That's> how, <laughs> hey, let me tell you, being from Brooklyn is probably even more challenging than from France. Exactly. <laughs> no, you, you're right. I mean, the, the culture is always a, a challenging issue. Um, not as much in the toy business as it was for me in the studio at the TV network, because if you want to talk about industry that is incredibly and uniquely domestic, it's the TV networks in the US. I mean, ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox later on, I mean, these are the ultimate American cultural icons that don't deal with foreign competition and that only consume American products. And so that was the biggest cultural shock for me. But in a way, it's interesting because I think to this day, I'm the highest ranked executive that is non-English as a first language in any TV network in America. It's not that big credit because what happened, I think, that my generation was in Europe was previewed to a lot of American TV shows and American culture. So in reality, uh, when I moved to the U.S., I already knew a lot about American culture and I knew a lot about American TV shows that helped me a lot navigate 
the, the TV studio at Disney, but also the ABC uh, network, because it was very familiar. With regard to the toy business, you know, it's interesting. I mean, uh, when I was a kid, and I'm probably going to give you a trivia you may or may not know, but when I was a kid, my favorite board game was Risk. Yeah. Okay, but do you, know, do you know who created Risk? I don't. Risk was created by a Frenchman named Albert Lamoris, who was a, who is a movie director, was a movie director. And then he sold the concept to Miro, which was a game company in France. And then Parker bought the, uh, the rights and brought it to the U.S. in 1959. So it's interesting how it works. Uh, and Risk was my favorite game. If you think, if you remember Risk, it was all about diplomacy, conflict, and conquest. The perfect setting for a CEO of a toy company, by the way. You couldn't, like, you couldn't predict it any better, right? But uh, that's an example of like the fact that sometimes the culture merged very easily. And even though I was in Europe, I played with the Sea Diver, which I brought back in the U.S. as a toy last year. So I think that, you know, the, the good thing about some of this is that a lot of the product we deal with, creative products, toys, movies, are very international in nature nowadays. Given that you're creating a culture there, you got to staff it. How are you... What are you doing to attract people to come to come work for you guys? And, and what should people do if they want to come work for you guys? Yeah, so that, that's really the interesting question was, how are we going to get the best creative, the best marketing people to come and work for us? And I, I have high expectations on the team and who we hire. And I'll give you an example of what we did. So I was looking to bring some um, really to great toy designers. So I called one of the head of creative on one of the biggest toy companies around is a friend of mine. Company start with M and end with A. <laughs> so you can figure it out. And I said, who's the best creative person you worked with in the last five years? And they said, this person, I think she's amazing. She's great. So I say, can you have her call me? So she called me a few days later and I met with her. And I said to her, I said, I'm going to tell you everything that you don't like about your job. And I started making a list. I said, you don't like the fact that there's too many layers to make a decision. You don't like the fact that decisions are so slow to be made. You don't like the fact that you can't sometimes work on the things you want to work. You don't like the fact that you lose the vision of your product as soon as it's out of your hand and you don't know what's happening after. And she looked at me and she said, wow, how do you know? I said, well, I've been around the block quite a few times. And I said, I, what if I can tell you I can make all of these disappear? I can literally write them on the board and make them disappear. Would you be interested in coming to work for us? And she thought about it for a while and she joined us. I was three years ago. She's still around. Actually, I also hired, hired her husband. So that so shows you that she's happy <laughs> here. And the idea is, you know, uh, you know Chris, we, we have the ability as a smaller company to do things differently. And we treat our creative differently. Creative is very important for us. It's the blood flow of the business. And uh, we, we take it very seriously and very fun, too, in a way. And we make sure that our creative people are happy, but we let them do what they're good at. And that we are provide an environment where they actually can be happy doing what they're good at. And that's key in hiring people. So do I infer from what you're saying that you have a fairly flat organizational structure? We do have a flat organizational structure. We have creative meetings every uh, once, twice a week. 
Everybody's in the room. Everybody has a voice. And I'm not going to lie to you. I always joke with them. I said, it's not a democracy. It's a dictatorship. But <laughs> doesn't mean that you can't make your opinion known. But in reality, in reality, I'm, uh, I always tell the team, if we only do what I want to do, we're going to fail. Right. Because nobody has all the answers. It doesn't really matter how smart you are or how smart you think you are, which are sometimes two very different things. The bottom line is we need to get the best creative ideas. And so I always encourage the team to disagree. And they disagree with me constantly, by the way. And, uh, and it's not a bad thing. It's a very good thing because we want people to have opinions. We want people to have great belief in their opinion versus being wishy-washy and just say, okay, if you want to eat red, I'll make it red. No, if you think it should be green and I'm telling you to make it red, just fight for it. And uh, I always tell the team, at this point of my career, I don't care about being right. I care about being successful. It's totally different things. Right. I would rather be successful with somebody else's idea than fail with my idea. Will you be in Dallas? No, we won't be in Dallas. Do you plan on being at any shows? We might be in Toy Fair next year. You know, we, we're doing distribution right now. We're talking to all the brick-and-mortar retailers, but we're doing all the direct-to-consumer via online and via our website, which is phenomenal. What he has done to the business, it has blown away the gatekeepers. That is the best, most exciting thing for us. Since the demise of Toys R Us in 2018, nobody has replaced Toys R Us. And if you look at the big box, you know, like Target, Walmart, they are the ultimate gatekeeper right now for the volume, right? The challenge with that is they were gatekeepers. They're not gatekeepers anymore because guess what? I can bring my product directly to consumer and let them judge on it. When I throw my product on Amazon on our website for Pink Seas, and I get ultra low, ultra low return rate and 95% five-star reviews, you have to question how much do I need a big retailer at this point? I need them to scale potentially, but not for validation of the concept anymore. And this is a big difference compared to 10, 15 years ago when, when you had a toy, you had to sell it to somebody for your toy to be able to be exposed to public. What intrigues me about this is that it's not just the new product. It's changing the entire way that the toy industry is being done and that consumers are shopping for you. Your challenge then is to amp up driving consumers to your website to get them to know about it. They're not going to see it walking down the aisles of a big box store, but the potential upside is tremendous. You're correct. Uh, the challenge though, I would say is if you put a product on the shelves of a big box store without any marketing support, right. it's not going to move either, right. right? So you have the challenge of like communicating your offering to the consumer, no matter what. The thing that is tricky, if you go to a Walmart these days, and I go to those stores all the time. I mean, I spend my time in those stores looking at the aisles and everything. There's nothing on the shelf that is not being prepackaged to buy. You know, it's one of the big brands that have been marketed to death. So the consumer walks in already pre-sold. There's not a lot of room for things to discover the way Toys R Us was. And these guys, as I said, are, are, are gatekeepers. The great thing nowadays is we can bypass them. And yes, you're right. You still have to bring people to your website. You still have to bring people to see your product on, on Amazon. But the bottom line is we don't see that as very different. If tomorrow we were on the shelves of Walmart, you know perfectly well that Walmart will say, okay, what are you going to do for us to drive traffic? 
okay, great. Well, you know, we do this, but for us instead. You're not hindered by a certain window in which you have to achieve a certain number of sales in order to have your product be viable. Yeah, and that's a critical thing. And that's one of the beauty for us of being a privately held company. You know, I run, I was the CEO of a public company for five years and I vote to never do it again. (laughs) And uh, one of the great things I have is time. You know, I can tweak my brand. It doesn't work. I'll tweak it a little bit next year. I don't have to flush it down the toilet because after three months it didn't perform. I can have time to figure out and see what I can change to make it better. And the good thing about Amazon is, you know, we launch a product. Sometimes there can be some comments and we can adjust for the comments for the next season and make the product better and better. It's actually doing, it's like doing real test marketing except that the consumer is actually paying you for the test. Right, and that, and that the brands become an interactive experience rather than something that you're putting out there and hoping for the best. You have a lot more control. A lot more control. You know, we, we control our pricing completely on Amazon, and that's very important too. Do you think that scale is getting less important? Scale is getting important because of pricing. Okay, so economies of scale is important because if you make 5,000 units of something, you're not going to be able to price it against somebody that makes 50,000 of something. When you sell to a retailer, your risks go way up. So you're taking on the risk and the cost of business in exchange for scale. What I'm hearing is that you are more concerned about having control over your destiny, control over your price, reducing your risk, and you're willing to give up some of the scale that comes from a big box store. You're correct, Richard, exactly. With one caveat, which is when I'm ready to go to brick and mortar, I have reduced my risk and the retailer risks a great deal. Why? Because at that point in my line, I know exactly what are the best selling SKUs. I know exactly what the return rate is. I know exactly what the satisfaction rate is. I know by geographical area, which SKUs sold better in which market. So I can even customize by region. And so at that point, I'm going to a retailer with a lot more information that's going to make them think, oh, wow, these guys know what they're doing. They have a lot of market information. So the key for us is, you're absolutely right, is keeping control of everything in a way to gather information and then leverage that information into potentially scaling. So might we say then that the importance of scale needs to come later in the process? Correct. So Didier, we're going to ask you the question we've asked everybody on season four of the Playground podcast. And I'm going to tell you, you can't use Risk or the Diver. What was your favorite play experience as a child that wasn't Risk or the Diver? (laughs) You know, I always liked board games. So actually, it was a very boring but classic game, the Monopoly game, which I loved playing and um, absolutely hated losing at it. And so I had developed this idea that if I learned by heart every card of Monopoly, that we know exactly that the rent for this one was $26, every home was $130, and two homes were $390. And if I could learn all of them by heart, I would make better decisions. 
and it would allow me to actually uh, win more often. And so what I did was I played a lot of Monopoly. And what I decided to do at the time was to learn by heart every single card that was in the game. <laughs> so I would know exactly immediately without thinking how much of hotel was there, what was the best purchase, and what was the easiest one to mortgage to get the most money. That's amazing. Amazing. And so you really didn't need to go get an MBA. <laughs> it, 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 it helps sometimes, but it's not as uh, it's not the main thing you need to do. Didier Pietri of Lukey Lab and Stratman, thank you so much for spending the time with us. This is really yeah, this is really insightful stuff, and I, I think you're you're really at the forefront of a changing industry, and we're delighted you spent the time with us today. Thank you so much. This is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort. Richard Gottlieb. We are supported by Global Toy Experts, The Toy Guy, and Beacon Media Group. We'll see you next time.